0: opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter number 6 this evening, Matthew chapter number 6. Some of you are saying, oh, preacher, you've got your outlines mixed up. You preached that this morning. Well, I know I was in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. We're going to be there tonight as well. This morning we preached on verse number 24. And uh, certainly that is a verse that is worthy to be preached upon. But tonight I want us to go down (coughs) to the end of the chapter. And I want us to take a look at verse number 33. But to provide us a little context, and I did not do this this morning, but I will tonight, I'd like to begin reading at verse number 24, and I'd like to read on down to verse number 33. We might read verse 34 as well. The Word of God says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon, that word mammon denotes riches and wealth and pleasures and anything that appeals to the flesh. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these... Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness." and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Let's read verse 33 once more. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time You've allowed us Thank you for your people that have gathered in your house. And I appreciate, Lord, them, but I appreciate you also for bringing them into your house. Help us now to worship. Lord, help us to hear and to apply your word. And better yet, Lord, help us to be submitted as the Holy Ghost applies your word to our hearts and lives. Speak to each heart according to your will, and we'll be sure to praise you for it. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Teach us to love you more. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm interested by the word in verse 33, first, first. It denotes some things in our life, and I want to preach to you tonight on the idea of first things first. Do you understand that we all have a list of priorities in life? I don't care who you are. And sometimes our priority list can change. There's times when uh, we may be thirsty, but we're busy and endeavoring in some task that we're doing, and a cup of water would be nice, but instead we forego it and we just continue on working and toiling in that endeavor. But now if that same person, let's say, their hair was on fire, amen, probably that cup of water would move up on their priority list. You see, we all have priorities, things that are important to us, but this list is not necessarily what we would call a static list. does not always stay the same. And I can say now, as a young man of 26, and I know that to some of the youngsters, uh, 26 are saying, oh, you're old. And some of you uh, older people, you're saying, 26, oh, I'd like to be 26 again, amen? But, uh, you know, as, as a fairly young man of 26, but growing out of my uh, boyhood for sure, and, uh, and growing out of some pant sizes too, somebody say amen, but I, my priorities are changing in life. There are things that were once very important to me that I, I just got to be honest, I couldn't care less about now. And there's other things in my life that when I was a youngster, they did not seem very important to me. I really couldn't have cared. I, I, I'm going to say a word here that, that I believe that a lot of people my age don't have as a priority, but as they get older, they're going to find it to be a priority. It, it's a little word that has big consequences, and it's that word, Credit. Say amen right there if you've got good credit. Say oh me if you've got bad credit, okay? Credit doesn't mean a lot to most people my age and a little bit younger, but when they go to buy a house, credit will mean something. Uh, it's kind of, I'm reminded of the fellow that was talking about uh, selling his soul to the devil and he made the statement, he said, well, I wasn't using it. <laughs> and that's kind of how credit is for young people. Well, I'm not using it. Well, there'll come a day when you will use it. It's going to be important on that day. And sometimes our priority list, it changes, it shifts, it moves. But we find in this passage that we are given something in our priority list that must be placed at the top. And if we are to ever be successful in our Christian walk, if we're ever to have the things that God would have for us to have, it's going to have to stay at the very top of our priority list. And I want to preach to you for a few minutes on it. In this verse, I want to notice basically four words or four phrases. I want to say that as I read this passage, I'm struck first off by the word seek. You see, that's a word of pursuit. We are all uh, in some way exerting our energies in life. Uh, we may be exerting... That, you ever met some people that worked harder at being lazy than they'd have to if they did something? You ever met people like that? One way or the other, try as we may to not do anything, we're all going to do something, we're all endeavoring, we're all pursuing, we're all trying to attain to something. The question this evening is, what is it that we're working for? What is it that we're striving for? What is it that we're getting at in our life? The Lord, as He gives us this exhortation, uses this word seek on purpose because it is an active word. It is a word that denotes action and denotes energy. It denotes a uh, life that is endeavoring to do something or is employed in a certain task for the purpose of meeting a goal. And this word has two ideas behind it. I want to give them to you. One of them is the idea of desire. You don't typically seek anything that you don't desire. And typically, if you uh, desire something, you're going to make the effort to seek it. Let me make a judgmental statement here. I know nobody likes it when preachers do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. Do you know the reason that we're not any closer to God is because we don't want to be any closer to God? Now, the book of James puts the ball squarely on our side of the court when it says, draw nigh unto God, and He'll draw nigh unto you. The fact is, uh, God's as close to us as we want Him to be tonight. We have the uh, the opportunity, it is our responsibility to draw closer to God. And I'm not talking about just you, I'm talking about me now. When I say that we have just as much of God as we want, no more and no less, you see, it denotes what our real desire is for God to have part in our life. And you'll hear some people that'll say sometimes, oh, well, I just want to know God in a greater way. But in, then they don't do anything to try to get to know God in, in a greater You see, that's nothing but double talk is what that is. I, I mean, that's nothing but vain words. They can say it all they want, but God says, all you have to do is draw closer to me, and I'll draw closer to you. It denotes desire. But as I study this word, and I don't do a lot of word studies because I'm, I mean, I'm just, you know, people ask, you know, do you read the Hebrew and the Greek? And I struggle with English, amen? So I stay away from most of it. But but I was interested as I studied this word that has the idea not only to desire, but to demand something. To demand something. So in other words, it's not just saying that we ought to desire the kingdom of God and His righteousness, But we ought to make it a demand in our life. It ought to be imperative in our life. In other words, we ought not be satisfied until we get this in our lives. There's a lot of people that, uh, you know, they have a fleeting desire to know something of God. I mean, somebody comes through, and and listen, I, I appreciate the revival that we just had. Wasn't it good? What a blessing. But every time you have revival or camp coming up, we have camp coming up. There always are some. And listen, I, I, it don't bother me too bad because, listen, if I had a group of ten kids, if I had a group of ten kids and, and and nine of them made professions of faith and seven of them meant business with God, I see that as seven young people came to know Christ. Amen? Now, I'm not saying we ought to mislead kids. I'm not saying that we ought to play fast and loose with the gospel. But I'm merely saying this. You can choose to look at the ones that maybe didn't mean it or you can rejoice in the ones that did mean it. Amen? Amen. I like what old brother Eric Peters, a missionary up there at the jail, said uh, when he was talking about the... And he said it here, so most of y'all remember this, but when he was talking about the numbers of professions that were made uh, in Jesus Christ, and he said, uh, he said, sometimes people ask me, how many of them you really think got saved? And I always tell them, as many as truly put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's how many got saved. And God's keeping a record, but we ought to rejoice in those things. But you do always have some that have this fleeting desire to know God. I mean, it just it appears in a moment, and then it's gone. You see, they're satisfied to desire for a brief moment, but they're not to the place where they demand it. You see, when you get to the place where you've got to have God in your life and nothing else will do, it'll change things in your existence. Our problem is we don't mind having God. It's just we're not demanding that we have a relationship with God. Now, remember, I mean, we're talking in a sense about temporal things here. Isn't that right? I mean, the context of the passage is speaking about clothes and and food and where you're going to sleep and these things. And it's saying that you seek these other things first and all these things shall be added unto you. But we have to understand that this is not just a recipe, but this is the pattern for our Christian ought to live their life. I mean, this is revolutionary because what God is saying here is all these things that you're desiring and all these things that you're hungering for, if you'll just put God first, God will do it for you. That's what He's saying if you'll get your priorities off of the things and get them on the, the, the person, if you'll get them uh, off of, uh, you know, all of this material things and get them upon the Savior, he's saying God can do some things for you. And we've got to get to the place where we demand it in our life to the point that we don't make excuse. You know, when you demand something, you don't make, you don't make and you don't take no excuses. Isn't that right? You ever been at a store where somebody come in demanding something? I've been there. Or maybe in a restaurant. Let me tell you something. There's, there's people, there's people that you could spit on the American flag and they won't get upset. But now you give them the wrong sandwich at a restaurant Nelly bar the door, friend. I mean, they're going to find that manager and have, have their scalp before it's all said and done. And people get upset and they get tore up. And I've seen the conversations before that people have. And, buddy, they're not giving any quarter. I mean, they got that manager over there at the table and that manager comes up and says, uh, how is your meal? Well, terrible. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Is, is, is there anything? No, there's nothing you can do. Well, is the food okay? No, the food's awful. And you know what they're doing? That manager might come and they might say, well, you know, I'm sorry your, your waiter or your waitress has been loaded down with people. Well, I don't care if they have. Well, you know, I'm sorry we've got one of our cooks is out and we're, we're just functioning with one. And, well, I don't care. You see, they're demanding justice. They're demanding restitution. And all over that silly sandwich, too. They're demanding those things. And so they're not going to take any excuses. They're not going to uh, make any excuses for them. They're saying this is going to be fixed one way or the other. And I'll tell you the problem with a lot of our Christian walk is we're all happy for God to stir us up. But then we go out those double doors and then we start making all these excuses and taking all these excuses. And there's all these reasons why the commitments we made to God at an altar don't mean anything in our own homes. We've got to get to the place where it means something, where we demand it. This is a word of pursuit that's spoken of. But I see not only a word of pursuit, I see a word of priority. Seek ye first. First. I got thinking about that word first, and I thought about the fact of how that word can be used. And I would say that as as it speaks of something being first, I would say that it's speaking of something being first in its chronology. You see, some of you have heard this before, this phrase, first come, finish it for me, First serve. That's speaking of chronology. We're speaking of someone being there before anything else. And I think in the immediate context of this passage, I think that's really the driving theme behind what's being said. You see, what they're saying is this. God's saying, you want all of these things. But if you'd make it your first goal to have a relationship with God and to seek Him, you'd find that God would add these things to you. It's a wonder how many good things God loved to do for us, but He can't, because if He did it, He'd be condoning our disobedience and rebellion. Things he'd love. I mean, listen, we've got a great God. I think sometimes we we don't think God's all that great. And it's not that God's all that great. It's not that God doesn't want to bless us. It's our life is in such a shape that God's not able to bless us as he'd like to. And what it's saying here is we have two options. And it's in the immediate context of verse 24, speaking of God and mammon, or riches and wealth and pleasure and the things that appeal to the flesh. Christ is saying here, all these things that you desire. And we talked about this morning, a lot of idols in our life are not bad things until they become idols. And certainly, I mean, when you read through this list, uh, you know, uh, you you read about things that are necessary. It speaks about food. Now... I hope this is the right crowd to say this in. But I'm a fan of food. Amen? Oh, I knew you would testify with that. I mean, we're the Eatonist Church. We got there People call us the food church. I, and that don't bother me. The New Testament Church, every time they met, they met around a dinner table. Look, read your Bible. They met and they break bread. Nothing wrong with that. We all need food. And we'd be in a mess if we said, well, if I just serve God, I won't ever have to eat again. God would say, you're dumb. (laughs) We can say that, but that doesn't mean that it's so. One of the things that's spoken of here is clothes. And can I say, and maybe it's just because of the, the statuesque frame that God has blessed me with, Brother Ralph, but I'm also a fan of clothes. And let me tell you something, if you had to come in here and watch me preach naked, you'd be a fan of clothes, too. Nothing wrong with clothes. We all need clothes. But what it's saying here, God's not vilifying these things. What he's saying is, in the place of your priority list, they've got to be on the right location. It's saying these things are not bad. And there's things that all of us want. I mean, I understand that. We all, uh, you know, we all want new cars or new homes or new this or new that. And those desires are not necessarily wicked in and of themselves. But listen to me, when they become an idol and they become our main pursuit and our main desire and our main cause, they become something God never intended them to become. And do you know that God sometimes will withhold those things from us to keep us from making a bigger idol of them than what we already have? You see, it speaks of this being a prerequisite. If God's going to bless us, we're going to have to put these things in the background. That doesn't mean that God says you can never desire them. That doesn't even mean that God's saying you can never work for Him. Listen, God's very... boy, I love the Word of God tonight. God's clear in what He says. He doesn't say, seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness in it alone. That's not what it says. But it says, seek ye first. It's not saying you can't work a job, you can't uh, do work on the side, you can't save money, you can't work towards these things. God's simply saying there's more important things to be focused on. We see that it speaks of it as a prerequisite. So many things God would love to do in our life, but He can't do them because of where our priorities are. But I would say it's not only a prerequisite, it demands that it be a a preeminence. You say, well, what's the difference between prominence and preeminence? Prominence takes a matter and makes it so big that it shines above all other things. Preeminence takes a matter and makes it shine so big that nothing else is even significant. There's a lot of us that have uh, the work of God in a prominent place in our life. And that's good. I recommend it to you. It ought to be prominent. Church is prominent. Uh, you know, witnessing is prominent. Bible reading is prominent. But there's one problem tonight. It's prominent, but it's not preeminent. Preeminent. It's bigger than a lot of things, but a lot of times the way that we look at it, you know what, what it reminds me of, really, is in Acts chapter 17, Paul, when he goes to Mars Hill, and there at Mars Hill in Athens, he's going through and he's looking at all of the different altars that they have set up in their uh, pantheon, in their temple there uh, for the gods of their pantheon, and they're, they're walking through them. Paul is, you know, Paul was a brilliant man. And Paul was classically trained in a lot of ways. Uh, He had grown up under Gamaliel there at the synagogue in Jerusalem. And uh, during the time of the Jews growing up in the synagogue, he would have learned about some of these other deities, not as real deities, but he would have been a classically trained person. You've got to remember, too, he's a Roman citizen. So he has had some training. So he knows what he's looking at. And as he's walking up and down the road and he sees all of these various uh, altars to different gods, he comes to a place and you know what he says? He finds a little placard. And he gets down and he reads this placard. And you know what it says? It says, to the unknown God. I'll tell you the problem. They had so many gods in their life, they couldn't know the true God. And you know what he does? He looks at him and he says, men and brethren, This unknown God, whom ye unwittingly worship, He said, Him I declare unto you. You've got all these gods that you've set up in your life, but this God over here that you have given prominence to, but not preeminence, you have set Him up in the pantheon of your life. And you know that's what we do with God. It's not that we mind God having a place. It's just that we mind Him having every place. It's not that we mind God being involved in our life. We just don't want Him to envelop our life. And we allow a place for Him and even give Him a place of prominence. But the problem is, at the end of the day, when it becomes either God or something else, so oftentimes we choose the something else. You see, the the word first can be used in chronology, but it can be used in rank as well. We do this when we have competitions every year at camp. We do we do a competition where they, they take the bean bags and they throw them at the boards. And we do that every year. And, you know, there's lots of kids play. And can I tell you something? I, this may make somebody mad. I hope it don't. I don't think it will, but it may make somebody mad. You know, when I was growing up and I played sports as a kid, there was one winner. Do you remember that? We live in a day now where you can't have a winner because you're going to hurt the loser's feelings. You know, we are constructing a false reality for our children in that environment. We're teaching them that everybody wins when that's not the reality of life. But we'd have this tournament. That was free. We have this tournament every year at camp. And there's lots of kids. In fact, last year, I guess almost every kid, probably about 50 kids played this thing. But only one kid, who won last year? Nathan. Nathan won. Boy, that's a talented family right there, I'm telling you. Next Sunday morning, we're going to have Nathan pitch the beanbags after the, the sink. But uh, he did that for us last year, and he won. There's only one winner. Now, if we, if we had 50 kids, I mean, I, I, I'm going to tell you something, Nathan. You were number one. Do you know what that makes every other kid? It don't matter. Right? Right? I'm not being ugly, but that's true. Isn't that Right? I mean, they don't give a ring to the team that loses the Super Bowl. They don't give a trophy to the team that loses the national championship. That place of first is what matters. And the same is true in our life. We use that term, first place, first place. Blue ribbon, first place for something. And we are denoting rank. We are denoting, in a sense, importance in a particular matter. And I believe we ought to seek God first, not only in the chronology, not just that we that we take care of His business before we take care of our business, but that we make His business vastly greater and more important than our business. I mean, listen, we ought to, we ought to believe the things of God are important. They ought not just be incidental. We they ought to be something that is vital in our life. Again, demand as the word seek denotes for us, demand. I mean, there's some of us listen, and and, and I. I fail. I, let me tell you something. You've got, I was, <laughs> a preacher friend of mine preached a message. It was entitled, Sasquatch, the Loch Ness Monster, and the Perfect Preacher. And you know what the idea behind it was? None of them exist. Amen? <laughs> I'm I am not perfect. But I, I fail. I mess up. I'm frail. I'm human. I'm dust. I'm bone. I'm flesh. A lot of times I'm more flesh than I am anything else. But let me tell you something. God help us when we can go longer without physical food than we can without spiritual food. Tells us where our priority list is. God help us when we can go longer without. Uh, we can go longer without talking to our heavenly Father than we can without talking to our earthly friends. We need to get to a place where the things of God are of vital importance. They're not afterthoughts. They're not insignificant. They're not just oh, ju- just just an important thing amongst other activities. No, they're preeminent. They take the precedent over absolutely everything and we give them our absolute best. We see a word about priorities, but I want to notice a word about purpose. Notice what it says, but seek ye first what? The kingdom of God and, don't you love the word of God, and His righteousness. This is what we are to be endeavoring to seek. And I see two things in this and I could I could preach for three hours on these few words. Don't get nervous, I won't, amen, But but I could because there's so much here. But I see first off that we see what is to be our cause in life, the kingdom of God. And you say, well, what is the kingdom of God? And the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are two different ideas in Scripture. They're not synonymous one with the other. You say, well, what is the difference? Well, the kingdom of heaven refers to the kingdom of Christ. It is a heavenly kingdom right now. One day it will be an earthly kingdom. Somebody say amen right there. It has a literal king. It has a literal throne. It is the throne of uh, Christ's father or his, uh, well, not father, but granddaddy, daddy, 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 David. And it is a literal throne that will literally be in Jerusalem. And you say, well, why is the kingdom of heaven not here? Because it's wherever the king is. And so it's the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of God. And by the way, do you know that in Matthew chapter number 24, they asked for the signs of the coming of the kingdom of heaven and he began to give them tribulation signs? That's what happened in Matthew chapter 24. But you know, there's another place where the disciples looked at him and asked him this question, said, what are the signs of the kingdom of God? And you know what he said? He said, the kingdom of God cometh not with signs, for it is within you. The kingdom of God refers uh, to each and every saved person, or if you want a theological definition, uh, the kingdom of God refers to anything under the realm and domain of God. And so in a dispensational sense, sometimes it can reflect on everything that God reigns over, but as far as salvation is concerned or the spiritual life is concerned, the kingdom of God refers to those that are saved, that are under the government of God. It is not a physical kingdom, it is a spiritual kingdom. And so you say, preacher, what are you getting at when when you say that? Or better yet, what's Christ saying in this passage? When He says the kingdom of God, can I put it as plain as I know how? He's talking about getting people saved. That's what He's talking about. He's talking about our spiritual life and the endeavoring of leading people to Jesus Christ when he says the kingdom of God. There's a bunch of other times, in fact, far more times that he speaks of the kingdom of heaven, but here he's speaking of the kingdom of God. He's speaking about our spirituality and our seeing Christ reproduced in the lives of others. And he denotes what for us is to be our cause in life. You know what a cause is. A cause is a consuming ideal or effort that drives us in our activities. David made the statement uh, to his older brother Eliab, who was backslidden, who was carnal. Eliab looked at him and said, What doest thou here, David? He said, I know the naughtiness of thine heart. Thou art come down to see the battle. And David answered him in one simple phrase, looked at him and said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? Now, what he's saying is he's saying, My cause is the God of Israel is Jehovah, his glory and his esteem and his majesty. And what he's saying to his brother is he's saying, Eliab, there is a reason for me to be here. I'm not here for nothing. I'm here to accomplish something. So a cause denotes the idea of accomplishing something of doing something. It is our driving activity or ideal or goal in our life. And God gives us what ought to be our driving goal, and that is seeing sinners come to Calvary. You know, there's no greater thing you can be employed in. And do you know that you don't have to be? I mean, it's wonderful. I praise the Lord for being able to be in full-time ministry. But do you know you don't have to be in full-time ministry for this to be your cause in life? You say, well, preacher, you know, I'm working a secular job and they're going to knock my head if I, if I go in there and start talking about Jesus, oh, you'd be amazed how much favor God can give you in a secular job. Somebody ought to testify to that if you know it to be true. You'd be amazed how much favor God can give you sometimes in a secular job. But let me go a step further and say this. It ain't always something that even has to be done on the clock. You know that I've found, and God's been very gracious to me in this respect, and some of you could testify to the same thing in your life. If you live like a Christian in front of people, when heartache comes their way, you'll be the person they come talking to. When they need someone to pray with, they'll be knocking on your door. When they need somebody to pray for them, they'll be coming and talking to you. You see, everything that we do ought to be an endeavor to win people to Jesus Christ. Do you know the chief purpose of the believer is to be found under the praise, honor, and glory. That's what Ephesians 1 tells us, to glorify God. But the chief work or the chief cause of the Christian is that of winning people to Jesus Christ. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It consumed his life. Not just Paul, but it did so for Peter too. It did so for James. It did so for John. Every single one of them, the all-consuming truth of their life was the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Word of God says, I determine to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Can I say, there's a lot of good things we can be involved in, but there ought to be nothing that takes the precedent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I mean, a, a, as a church, I believe that's true. I mean, listen, we, and, and I'm all for, we just send all them clothes and all, all that stuff up Pine Ridge. I'm for that, man. I'm excited about that. But do you know the real purpose of that is because that gives that missionary an opportunity to witness to people. If he wasn't witnessing to people, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be interested in sending him a smelly old sock. Amen? Because I'm not interested just in putting clothes on people or just in filling people's bellies. Hey, there's plenty of people die and go to hell with nice clothes on their back and with food in their stomach. You can do all those things. It's just a band-aid. The chief work is winning people to Jesus Christ. So any missionary that's willing to tell people of Jesus Christ and is willing to live and endeavor to be in line with the Word of God, I'm for them. I'm for him. I want to see them win people to Christ. That ought to be our chief cause as well. It ought to be more important than our uh, than the secular job God blesses us uh, with. It ought to be more important. And do you know how, like old Dr. Seitler used to say this, and it's always stuck with me, he used to say, duties never conflict. Do you know that's true? Duties never conflict. And I don't believe a man has to neglect his family to witness to people and to win people Jesus Christ. But can I say that that winning people to Jesus Christ, even though our family is our first ministry, uh, a lot of the stuff that we do with our families, the activities that we spend with them, winning people to Christ is really higher above on the chain of priorities than even that. Now, I'm not saying you should neglect your family. I'm not saying you shouldn't provide for You know, the Word of God says that if a man doesn't provide for his... For his own home, he's worse than an infidel. He's denied the faith. And I'm not talking about neglecting your family when I say this, but I'm saying even our family, something as beautiful and as blessed as that, a lot of the things that we spend time with them in, it's not that they're bad, but is that the best way we could be spending our time for Jesus Christ? Well, I'm, I'm in it now, Brother Ralph. So I guess I'll preach on something else. We see not only a cause, but we see the consecration spoken of. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and what? And His righteousness. I love the Word of God because it's so accurate. It's perfect. And it does not say, and righteousness. It could say, and righteousness. I don't think it would affect whether I'm saved or not if it said, and righteousness. But that's not what it says. It says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and His, God's, righteousness. You know, that's really the essence of what consecration is in the life of the believer. Consecration is not our energies and our self-will attempting to produce holiness. That's not what consecration is. And a lot of people are getting frustrated in their spiritual walk because they're trying to do it themselves. And they don't understand that the the spiritual walk is not something of self-determination, but is something of surrender and submission. The Jews had this problem. Paul said that they, going about to establish their own righteousness that they have uh, kicked away or pushed away or turned away or forsaken or uh, rejected the righteousness of Christ. As long as we're trusting in our righteousness, we're not trusting in His righteousness. Do You know, that's why I believe that works can have no part of salvation. Because as long as we're trusting our work, we're not trusting His finished work. As long as we're trusting our goodness... We're not trusting His grace. As long as we're trusting our ability, we're not trusting His blood. That's why the book of Romans says it's either all of grace or it's none of grace, But Charlie. It's either all of works or it's none of works. It cannot be both. And so when it speaks of His righteousness, it's talking first off about the salvation of the sinner that puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know that the first step for anybody is to come to know Christ? If you don't know Christ, nothing that you can do is of any avail. It begins at Calvary. We must know the Son as our Savior. But then it goes a step further. Do you know that it's not just we trust in Him to get us saved and then we do it on our own? Do you know that it's an effectual trusting of Him? Paul said this in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, now, wait a minute. The Bible tells me that I was dead in trespasses and sins. And then my old dead man was nailed to the cross of Calvary. So I'm crucified. He's saying, Paul's dead. Old Saul of Tarsus, he's gone but yet I still walk around, I'm drawing a breath, I'm living, I must make decisions, I must uh, have action, I must do things in life. So he says, how do I do that? If spiritually, if I'm dead, then physically, what do I do? How do I live? The life which I now live in the flesh, how I live day in, day out. He says, I live it by the faith of the Son of God. I live it by putting my faith in Him and by exercising His faith through me by submitting to the work and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You see, that's how He lives through us. It's not, it's not so much us trying to shine Him to the world, it's Him shining through us to the world. You say, well, effectively or effectually, how do I accomplish that? Through submission to the Holy Spirit. You see, when you come to decisions in your life, And we all do. We all come to decisions, things that we must choose about. And the Holy Spirit of God uh, pricks our heart and says, this is the right thing to do. We have two choices. We can either trust in ourselves and we can say, I'm going to do it my way. Or we can say, no, I remember now, I died at Calvary. So it's not me, it's Him. And we obey Him. And then that's His decision and His righteousness being manifest through us. We see a word here of purpose, and I want to close with this thought. We see finally a word of promise. If you do this, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. If you do this, it says, and, and, in other words, if you do this, the consequence of it, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not a health and wealth preacher. I'm not healthy enough, and I sure ain't wealthy enough. I don't have the teeth for it. Amen. It wouldn't let me on TV. I'd smile and people just click, turn the TV off. But I will say this. I will say this, that though the believer should not put any words in God's mouth that God has not said, you say, well, what do you mean? Well, like, for instance, saying if I pray for a new truck and claim it, I'm going to have it. Well, God didn't say I was going to have that new truck. Right. Or if I say, well, I'm going to claim that I'm... You can claim it till you're blue in the face. If God didn't promise it, what makes you think He's going to do it? And it's wrong to do that. It's wrong to put words in God's mouth. But by the same token, it's wrong to try to take words out of God's mouth that He put there. Isn't that what the Word of God says concerning the Word of God? It says uh, that you're not to take any from and not to add any there too. And there's a lot of us that, listen, through our pride we add things to. But through our doubt we take things from. The Word of God. And it is a scriptural promise that if we'll put these things first in our life, all these things, what things? Well, notice first off the bounty of these things. It says all these things. It doesn't say everything. It says all these things. Well, what are these things? Well, raiment, food, clothing, shelter, the necessities of life. the bare, It's the bare necessity. <laughs> God's promised us all these things. All these things, not just some, all of them, everything we need, if we'll put God first, God said, I'll give it to you. Amen. Can I go a step further and can I just testify how good God is? Amen. Sometimes He just don't even, He don't even just give you what you need. Sometimes every once in a while, He'll give you what you want. Amen. And He's done that for me. Amen. I look at my life, I've got so many things I don't need. Amen. I mean, I, we're, we're going to try to sell our house. And we're going to have to find places to put our stuff you say, well, preacher, that's not a pulpit. Yeah, it's a Bible word. Look it up. Stuff. That's a Bible word. It's used in the word God. stuff. You say, well, it's different context. What does it really mean? It means stuff. Like, you got stuff and I got stuff. We all just got all this stuff everywhere. And, I mean, think about that. I've got, I've got to find other places to put my junk so that I can sell the place that I keep to put my junk. That's how good God's been to us we got two vehicles. Well, I mean, and it's a blessing to have two. There's times when you need two. But I reckon for, you know, years and years and years, people did with one. We could probably live with one if we had to. But God's given us some things that we want. God's good in that way. In fact, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love it. God wants to do so much in our life, but the problem is He can't because we're not putting first things first. And notice, secondly, we see the bestowing of these things. see the bounty of them. All these things, but I like the word that God uses. All these things shall be what? You'll get them through the sweat of your brow. No. You'll get them through a little elbow grease. Let me tell you something. I have worked hard in my life, but I have never worked so hard that it made my elbows greasy. Have you? I don't know where we get that from. I don't know, whoever come up with that had a condition or something, because that's not normal to work so hard that it makes your elbows greasy. That do not even that don't make any sense, does it? No, not by your elbow grease. It says they'll be added, added unto you, added. In other words, God will provide them for you. God will make a way when there is no way to be made. God will add them, just added. And it's interesting, I think about that word adding, and it never denotes work or effort. It simply denotes addition, just added, just appear. Think about the concept of math, and I'm done right here, but you think about the concept of math. When, when you've got, uh, you know, 2 plus 2 is, is 4, or if you're into that common core stuff that the federal government's pushing, it's 5, I think, but 2 plus 2 is 4. And we just, we do math so flippantly because it's just, it's concept. I mean, it's not like we have 2 of something and then we must find 2 of something else. We just, here we have two and we say plus two. We just say it. It's just so simple. And that's, God used a mathematic word when he says this. Just add it. Just add it. I can't tell you the times that it's come out of nowhere in my life. God's blessed me and made a way when there was no way. There was no way to be made. But God just bestowed it upon, just blessed us with, just added it to us. You say, preacher, how do I see all this? How do I do how do I how do I experience this? Well, it's one simple truth. But seek ye first. First chronologically and first in rank. Seek ye first. Make Christ first in your life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you.